Hello, you are plugging into the Evolution Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor Charmaine. Have a fantastic day. We'll see you at church. Okay, so today, the title of my message is Productive Justice. And using some of the passages in Matthew 5, I want to share with you my thoughts on justice and what sort of justice actually moves the world forward. Whether it's our internal belief systems, whether it's interpersonal relationships between each other, whether it's trying to get out of our in-group thinking, our old cultures, even systems and policies in the world, I want to talk about being productive with our justice. Okay, because how many of you know there's been a lot of social media rage lately? How many of you know it's affecting our moods, for some of us, our mental health, sometimes even our motivation to be a part of change, and that's really tough because one of the core values at the evolution is justice, Okay. So I'm sure you guys can relate to what I'm saying. You have been feeling the heat. I have been feeling the heat. So let me start today by setting the record straight on anger. Because there's a lot of misconceptions in Christian community and outside of Christian community about anger. And there's this perception that Christians, we have to be nice all the time. That the ideal for us as human beings, the goal to be more like Jesus is to reach a point where we are never angry at all. Straight up, I'm going to call BS on that right now. Now listen, I believe Jesus was a pacifist. That he lives by the law of love and a code of nonviolent revolution. But love and nonviolence did not preclude him from ever being angry. You see, there were moments in the Bible where he was angry with his disciples and he corrected them on their attitudes and their behaviors. There were moments where he was angry with problematic religious leaders and he called them out. There was once he went into God's house, the Bible says, with a whip and he overturned the tables and chased the corrupt merchants who were exploiting the poor out of God's house. Listen, Jesus got angry. His righteous anger at injustice, pain, and suffering was part of his motivation to love people, to minister to them, and to create change in the world around him. So anger, especially what Christians, I guess, like to call righteous indignation, can be a very powerful starter for change. And you pair that together with social justice, and nowadays the power of social media in your generation, the potential is incredible. And still, alongside alongside all that, righteous anger and a belief in justice, Jesus also taught us that as his followers, anger must not get the better of us. We must never kill or destroy or devalue another person, even our enemies. We must not repay violence with violence, hurt with hurt. And if that's not what you're getting from your Bible, read it again. Now, let me set the record straight now about social media rage. So is social media rage productive? Or is it unproductive? Does it actually create change or does it not create change? So ready for some psych stuff? 
Now, there's a term that was coined in 2004 by a bunch of neuroscientists, and it's called altruistic punishment. Now, the basic premise of this study is this. Human beings tend to feel good when we punish others. Especially when we believe ourselves to be punishing someone in the name of defending the moral high ground. So in the study, participants were made to play an economic game. And they were given the opportunity in this game to punish others who violated the rules or played unfairly. So through the use of brain scans, scientists found that the reward-related regions of our brains consistently lit up when players administered punishment. And it lit up even more when players had to pay to punish people. So the conclusion of this study, humans feel good when we punish others. And we are willing to pay, even sacrifice, in order to do so. Now, I hope you can see how this might be a double-edged sword. It can be a mechanism to keep bad behavior in society, in human society, in check. But it can also lead to really serious abuse, especially when we perceive ourselves to be right. And here's the scary bit, right? Other studies over the years have found similar results particularly studies that study why human beings are able to participate in the physical and emotional torture of prisoners. So in his 2017 book, Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst, neuroscientist Robert Soplowski writes, punishing norms violations is satisfying to our brains. As it turns out, It doesn't matter whether the perceived wrong is actually true or not, whether our moral high ground is real or imagined. Punishing others for perceived slights or violations of what we believe to be correct or justice releases dopamine in our brain. So whichever cause you support, whether it's feminism, whether it's eco-activism, whether it's anti-racism, whether it's religious conservatism, Expressing and externalizing our anger makes us feel brave, noble, and gives us a sense of superiority. And because dopamine feels good, we are willing to pay and sacrifice in order to punish to get our next high. And as you know, as I've said over many messages, dopamine is also addictive, which means now not just social media, but social media rage is potentially addictive. And so add to this now, social scientists say, the social feedback element of social media, that is, other people's approval of our rage online, the person raging starts to feel even better. And an unhealthy pattern starts to repeat itself in individuals and in culture. Ooh, sit with that for a moment. Gen Z. (laughs) and millennials here who love social justice. So at this point, social scientists and researchers can't tell if society at large is becoming more angry as a whole. But what they can tell is that anger in our generation has become more contagious because of social media. And it is causing us to become chronically wound up, chronically dysregulated in our ability to manage our anger and belief systems, and chronically anxious. 
So anger is literally starting to control us, consume us, and consume others around us. So here's what I think. I don't think social media rage is actually justice at all. Now, some anger might be a good starter and call to action and motivation, but prolonged rage and bitterness does nothing to move equity forwards. It only starts to destroy our well-being and drive us further apart and against each other. That's not justice. So I'm sure many of us here have been party to online injustice or anger at times, or at least confused, especially right now, as to what we're supposed to feel, you know, when an issue goes viral, right? So I think it's really time to ask ourselves, guys, not just what do we believe here in the evolution, or which side of issues we are on, but what is the actual way forward for everyone? Because to be passionate about justice is one thing, but what sort of justice culture and behavior actually aligns our beliefs to love and goodness? What sort of practices actually moves our entire generation forward? What kind of justice promotes well-being? What kind of justice creates equity? What kind of justice brings the needle closer to the kingdom of God, to a humanity that is love, goodness, and peace? So for me, it goes back to Jesus. How did Jesus handle the rage and anger towards injustices of his time? And how do we translate his teachings and example to our time? And that's what we're going to explore today, all right? What would Jesus think about our social media rage? What would he maybe tell us is the best way forwards for us? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to focus on two sections today. Starting in verse 21, it says there, You have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go, first make right with your brother or sister or friend, then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court and you will be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you have paid the very last penny. Now we skip a few verses down, okay? Verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. And when they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. So my first point for you today, justice is not dehumanizing, shaming, or ridiculing others. 
I repeat, justice is not dehumanizing, shaming, or ridiculing others. You see, there's this perception about being woke, right? That it means to go after people. That it means to shame others and to cancel organizations. Now, listen, there's a part of me that agrees with some of that, which is there needs to be greater accountability and consequences. I think with many of the issues that are being brought to light today, the bad behavior has gone on long enough. Sexual predators should be prosecuted. Toxic masculinity, patriarchy, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and every kind of bigotry should be called out and stopped. I 100% believe that there should be consequences, that there must be repentance, there must be restitution for too many years of unjust power, control, and oppression. Yes? Because for too long, dark things have gone on. And for the marginalized, you know, they have tried for many years to politely and kindly address these issues with people in power, but people in power have not been listening. And that is why minorities are now speaking louder. The marginalized sometimes have to shout in order to be heard. And they should. And when that happens, if we are someone with privilege, it's time for us to listen and to pay attention. Not for one news cycle, Not for one day, but as long as it takes to right the wrong and level the playing field. That's it. I do not believe that anyone needs to dehumanize anyone else in order to shine the light on justice. So I don't believe in name-calling. Fabricating or exaggerating or making false accusations go viral that that is the way to progress justice. In fact, I think that by doing that, it means a future of more of the same. It's just one group taking over power from another group. It is violence dethroning violence. But mind you, let me stress, lest anyone listen to this and get me wrongly, I don't think that most social activists or advocacy groups are this way at all. I would say most Social activists and advocates are as concerned as I am with how things are going on social media. You see, the great thing about social media is everyone has a voice. The bad thing about social media is everyone has a voice. (laughs) So here in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about the problem. And I'm going to give you Eugene Peterson's version just for this, okay? Because I like the way he puts things very straightforwardly. Message Bible, verse 21. You are familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who so much is as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled to court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. So you see, when we think about human violence, we often only think about the act of murder, right? But here, Jesus makes very clear what we, you and me, we actually already know in our conscience. And that is, every act of human violence begins with unmanaged anger in our hearts. So even if none of us here ever graduates to the physical act of killing somebody, 
many of us in our lifetimes will commit enough emotional, psychological, and relational murder with our words. This is inherent to broken human nature. So do you know this, right? That every act of physical violence in human history and existence has always been preceded by murder with our words first. Whether it's a violent man who abuses his wife or a culture committing genocide against another culture, psychologists, anthropologists, social scientists and historians have all found that human violence is preceded by violent words. So, for example, before a person ever kills, they will first call their target names, usually degrading and belittling words to make that person less than human. So, for example, during the Rwandan genocide, the majority Hutus called the minority Tutsis cockroaches that needed to be exterminated. In the days leading up to a mass genocide that lasted 100 days, there were 294 instances of dehumanizing public propaganda and 252 broadcasts calling for the destruction of the Tutsi minority. You see, as it turns out, our human brains actually has a fail-safe mechanism that does not allow any of us to easily murder another human being. So in order to commit violence against someone else, we actually have to dehumanize the person with our words, to devalue their status in our eyes. We have to be able to perceive them as less than a full human being in order to commit any act of violence against them. So the phenomenon, guys, that we see happening all across social media that is being called justice, it's a really scary thing. Whether it's Christians who use homophobic language but claim they are being kind and trying to save sinners, or small but loud pockets of activists who go after people with unethical means, listen, it is not a good thing. It is not bringing us together. It is not healing divides or redistributing power. It is not creating a more equal, fair and harmonious world. Jesus is so serious about this in the Sermon on the Mount that he says that there are two courts of law human beings must answer to. The courts of this world and the court of God. The courts of human beings, guys, are never perfect. Even at best, it can prosecute murder, but it can't always prosecute words. Because often the limits of man-made rules is that it can only judge an action, not an intention. I mean, how do you hold intention that is invisible and in someone's head accountable? But Jesus warns, even if a human court cannot hold our violence accountable, he says, remember that there is a divine court that holds us accountable and that is God, who sees our thoughts. That is why human beings, I believe, we need God. Because man-made rules can check our actions. You know, cultural norms can check our behavior, but only a relationship with Jesus can change our conscience. So what is Jesus trying to tell us here? He is teaching us the root of the issue is our heart. We need to change our human instinct that tends towards violence. 
We need to change our inner life. And we do it also by changing the words that we use, being careful how we speak to each other. That we don't humanize. That we don't thoughtlessly or carelessly or easily say idiot or stupid. You see, we have to find a way, guys, young people, to call out injustice without committing injustice. We have to find a way to consequence injustice without committing murder. We have to find a way to hold people accountable without destroying them with our words. And when we do that, that is when our justice becomes productive, not unproductive. Ready for my next points? So I just told you what justice is not. Let me tell you what justice is. Justice, according to Jesus, is repentance, reconciliation, and restitution. So being kind to oppressors and loving our enemies doesn't mean we are walkovers. You know, it doesn't mean Jesus is saying, just give in to the abuse and oppression. It doesn't mean just stop fighting. You know, let go of making change. You know, change will happen when you go to heaven. (laughs) Because no, Jesus says justice is a call to repentance for ourselves and it is calling others to repentance. There must be a turning away from sinful ways, whether in an individual or in a society. There must be turning away from a wrong way into a better way. But the ultimate goal of justice is not just to dethrone a violent power and replace it with another violent power. The goal is reconciliation and restitution so that there is greater empathy and equality. And one that lasts. So let's break it down. Is that okay? Matthew 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your friends and then come back and offer your gift. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You see, I mean, look at this, right? Before we can even come and make an offering to God, come to worship Him. If someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar in the house of God and go out there and make right. Go and apologize and not just apologize, make it right. You won't get out of this, God says, until you pay the very last penny. You see, we often, right, Christians, we look at this passage as applying to just our little squabbles with our friend and our family, our colleagues and our bosses, but no, it applies to people groups as well. If you have committed something wrong against someone else, if you have been party to systemic, physical, emotional, economic harm to the other person or group, go and make it right. Before you offer your gift to God. You see, we often forget, right, what offerings actually represented in the Old Testament. Offerings, yes, were our worship to God, but offerings were also acts of repentance and restitution that reconciled Israel to God. So we may not bring physical offerings to God's house anymore. The only physical one might be our tithes. But the meaning of our worship still stands. We are to come to worship with lives living in repentance. Lives working towards turning away from violence towards love. We are to live in reconciliation to God, the God whom we were once estranged from. from. 
We are called to make right with people and God if we have done them any wrong. So it's ridiculous to think that we can come to worship, pray and ask God to bless our lives, help us make money, get us promoted at work, get us married and bless our kids to be smart and get into the right school without a care for someone else's justice. Without a conviction and practice of striving for repentance, reconciliation and restitution in as much of our lifestyle and practice as we can. So listen guys, justice is not killing people on social media. But it is not doing nothing either. In fact, when I read Matthew 5, I think Jesus is just the greatest social scientist ever. In a time where social science didn't exist, he understood what human and babe behavior and instinct was like. And he broke down for us what it takes to productively create a better world. Repentance, reconciliation, restitution. These three areas are literally the solution to a fairer and more equal world. First, to create a better world, there has to be a change of hearts and minds. Because no amount of laws and policies can transform the way we treat each other. You can have a law against racism, but if people are still racist in their hearts, it will come out in the way they speak and they treat people. Second, there can be no deep change of hearts and minds unless there is reconciliation. You can't unbigot a person by getting them to read a book or online education alone. People learn and change most deeply by in-person proximity. When they walk in another person's shoes, when they experience firsthand another person's struggle or suffering, when they see and experience firsthand that their enemy is actually human and good. You can't even unbigot a person by prayer. God says, leave the gift at the altar and send them back out into the world. They need to go be with people. Because reconciliation is dependent on our physical proximity, our investment in somebody else's life. And the way we reconcile people affects the way we worship God. Third, the world will never fully change unless the way we do life, in fact, the proof that we have really repented and been reconciled to someone is restitution. Because there needs to be proof of change. The way we do life and culture and policy and laws has to change. If we say we've been transformed by the law of love, there must be change. If we say we value people the same way we value ourselves, there must be change. There must be action, intentional redistribution of power and privilege. Now I know, again, this ideal is hard, layered, complicated. God is not expecting your perfection, neither am I. But I think He is expecting our effort, our desire externalized in action. Whether it's treating the people in your life with kindness and generosity, whether it's standing up for what's right at work and at school, whether it's speaking up for fairness and equity for other groups who are at a disadvantage because they don't have the kind of privilege and weight of voice that you have. You don't have to be a social media warrior. The question is, are you moving the needle forwards by living a life of repentance, reconciliation, and restitution?
Finally, my last point for you today. Jesus' justice is nonviolent, but it is not weak. So when I was in undergrad, there was this uh, particular political philosophy class that really got me riled up one day. So at the time, now I've always, well, at the time, now, still, I pride myself in being a thoughtful, intelligent Christian. <laughs> but in this particular lesson, we were discussing the political philosophy of Jesus. And one of my favorite lecturers offended me, or rather offended my Christian sensibilities at the time when he said two things during class. The first was this, that in some of his teachings, Jesus was actually drawing his ideas from the Greek philosopher Plato and they were not his own. And immediately I went in my Christian righteousness, what? Jesus is the son of God. He is the beginning and the end of all knowledge. Plato drew inspiration from him, not the other way around. The second thing that he offended me about was he said Jesus was a pacifist. Now, maybe it was the way he said it. I took it as an insult because it made Jesus sound politically weak and naive. Like, if Jesus was truly God, how could he be so naive and believe nonviolence is the only way to bring peace to humanity? So in my head, he's talking, walking across the aisle, and I'm quoting Bible verses to myself about the Son of God is a mighty conqueror and a warrior, and one day he will return to judge and exact vengeance on the earth. Oh, so naive and so tribal, so unintelligent, self-righteous and defensive of my immature view of faith and Christianity. You see, just because Jesus is non-violent, just because He is love, it does not make Him weak. It doesn't make Him a shallow God. You see, Matthew 5, 38, it's, it goes like this, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a two for two. For I say to you, you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You see, ultimately, one of the most revolutionary things about Jesus was his radical belief in nonviolence. It was this nature of our Savior and His teachings that inspired great men like Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, to live by the law of love, to practice nonviolence in their pursuit of social justice, which ultimately led to them making historical change. Not perfect, but historical that still ripples on today. So, you know, when I was in South Africa two years ago, I struck out a conversation with our cab driver as he was taking us around to different places. And I asked him, you know, tell me about Nelson Mandela and how the people in South Africa felt about him. And the way this cab driver spoke with so much heart and respect about Mandela, you know, he called him, as many South Africans do, Madiba, which means father. But he didn't just say it because that's how people address Nelson Mandela. It was the way he used the term. He would go, he is our Madiba. He is the one who taught us to forgive and to love our enemies. And that is why now blacks and whites can live at peace with each other despite all that was done to us. And he said to me, I do not feel hatred or anger towards whites anymore. Now listen, I know real life is rarely as simple as that. 
Because even as he said that, I kind of want to go and ask, you know, but are they still racist? Are the rich still the whites and the poorer still the blacks, you know? You see, of course, racism and discrimination and inequality continues and persists everywhere, no matter what Gandhi or MLK or Mandela did. But the way in which that driver spoke, it reminds me that Jesus' justice works. That productive justice that comes out of a law of love that's written in our hearts, that love that is nonviolent creates a better way forward. You see, the fact of the matter is our hope for a better world will always be a struggle. As long as not everyone is surrendered to God or repentant or, or living by a law of love, you know, until everyone has experienced inner healing and transformation, we can't help ourselves. You see, even for those of us that are Christians and really have a robust relationship with God, we are still human. There are days where the tide of culture and social media sucks us in. There will be days where we come to worship and God will still send us back out and tell us to reconcile before we come to bless Him. You see, I learned some other things recently through a neuroscience podcast by Shankar Vedatum called Hidden Brain. Now, in an episode that he titles Tribes and Traitors, ooh, he explains that generally for human beings, our need for empathy tends to exceed our capacity for empathy. Let me re repeat. Our need for empathy tends to exceed our capacity for empathy. Which is why bringing groups from different sides together is incredibly hard. When we come together, Everyone wants to receive more empathy than we are willing to give. So unless humans intentionally interrupt and go against that pattern and instinct, most people will come to any conversation feeling that they are right or the other person doesn't understand where they are coming from. Ha! Huh. But then he says another layer of complication comes into play, and that is this word called trauma. Trauma makes us even more unable to empathize with the other. Because trauma causes our brain to focus only on the way other people have hurt us. So for example, I'm going to step into a minefield on your behalf today, okay? When some feminist activists rage on social media against toxic masculinity, and I'm talking here more than just anger or calling out, I'm talking when they start to dehumanize, shame, and ridicule men. The reason they do it is because they are acting out of trauma. Now, let me be very clear, women have very good reasons to be angry and to be righteously indignant. Women have gotten the short end of the stick for very long, too long. Everything from unequal pay to unequal workload to unrealistic expectations to harassment to sexual assault. Men, it is not our job to make you feel better or to stroke your ego when it comes to women's rights. That's it. When the rage 
starts to take on. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I have been treated unfairly for decades. Now it's time to give men a taste of their own medicine. That is more trauma speaking than it is justice speaking. And here's the problem with an eye for an eye kind of justice. Retaliation always causes further trauma. Trauma creates further segregation. It makes the empathy gap grow even bigger. And so the people you are trying to win over and try to make, getting, getting them to give up power and to make space for you, they will stop focusing on what they need to do to give you restitution. They will stop focusing on what they did to hurt you and they will start focusing on how you are now hurting them too. So just think about it, right? Any social justice issue. I pick women's rights because I'm a woman and I have a right to say what I want to say about the issue. But any issue. When we do justice without resolving our inner trauma, we always end up traumatizing others and defeating our own cause. And that's not all. You see, the people in power who don't want to change and repent will never change and repent. But when there's a rage on the inside of us, the fallout of that violence is never just on those people in power who don't want to change. The trauma doesn't just cause us to be tribal, it actually causes us to even start to brand peacemakers as traitors. So that is why angry social justice advocates, or rather raging social justice advocates, always end up going after their own allies and their own communities too. If you aren't doing justice the way I do justice, you are traitors. <laughs> it's ironic, really. Retaliatory justice actually literally sets back justice. I don't think you need me to explain it. I think the last few weeks you've seen enough trauma and retaliation on social media to understand. I'm exhausted. You're exhausted. My friends are exhausted. My friends from minority groups are exhausted. Even about the things we actually care about. My point is, Jesus was right. Retaliation doesn't work. Love works. Nonviolence does not make us weak. It actually makes us strong and more resilient. But then, okay, PC, what does that mean? Should we just take the abuse? Whether it's someone who is a minority or someone who's trying to be an ally and scolding me on social media, what do I do? I mean, PC, that's what you seem to be saying, right? Respond with love. Right, Jesus said, don't oppose those who hurt you. If they slap you on the other cheek, turn the other cheek for them to slap as well. If they hold you to court to take the shirt off your back, give them your coat. If they force you to walk one mile, go two. Well, yes, that's kind of what I'm saying, literally, but also not 100% literally. Because Jesus here is talking in hyperbole, meaning he's exaggerating these real-life instances to make a point. I mean, there's no way any teaching of Jesus, even Jesus, he can't squeeze every real-life situation into the Bible. So he's making a point. And that is, instead of paying back violence with more violence, stop violence in its tracks by acting in love instead. So, 
Some of the ways that I can imagine this verse actually means in our time is be non-reactive to those who want to hurt you. Be kind to those who try to slap you. Be gracious to those who abuse you. Be generous to those who exploit you. Now, sometimes being kind means to punch back, but not most of the time. Sometimes being kind is to be clear and direct. No, do not treat me that way. Amen? It's being kind to them. It's saying, hey, stop. This is not good for you. Not good for me, not good for you either. The point is that we stop the cycle of violence and create a better way forward. But in the midst of all these real-life situations, Jesus slips in a rather unusual line, which is pretty famous, even if you're not a Christian. And one that is actually, strangely, a bit more metaphorical than the rest of the instances, because all the instances he lists over there, scholars can trace it to a particular uh, thing that was happening in culture at the time, an actual thing. For example, if they tell you to carry one mile, carry two, it's actually because Roman soldiers had this right to be able to, on the street, tell any Jew to stop what they were doing and carry their load for them. Okay? So, scholars could trace it to actual incidents, but this one line has puzzled people for a very long time. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. They can't really find it anywhere, okay? So, but not long ago in Christian ethics, one theory came up to the fore. And it has to do with some of the historical cultural norms of Jesus' time. So, back then in Jesus' time, less now, like Muslims, Jews considered their left hand to be the unclean hand. So usually, if you were to slap somebody, you would use your dominant hand, right? Okay, I'm going to make all of you do this with me. Use your dominant hand, right? Your right hand. Most, most of you, right? Okay, most of the population. So it would naturally be your right. Now, follow me here. If you were to slap someone with your right hand, you can turn to your name and do it. <laughs> Which cheek will you be slapping? The left cheek, Right? So why does Jesus start this illustration with the right cheek? Now, there are two possibilities. And both have to do with not just physically hurting the other party, but deliberately insulting and shaming the other party that's being slapped. You see, to hit the right cheek of a person, you would either have to backhand <laughs> the other person which would have been an act of insult. Or you would have to use your left unclean hand, which would have been an act of shame. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's not asking us to just take the abuse. He's still saying, don't retaliate violence with violence. But he's also saying, you do not need to accept the shame and insult that your abuser tries to put on you. So they try to shame you on your right cheek, turn and give them your left instead. Hmm. I'm not going to say anything more. I know again, right? PC, why can't you just give us a straightforward do or don't do? It's not my fault. It's Jesus. 
He gives us the principles. He gives us a couple of examples and illustrations and parables. And he goes, now human being, person whom I've made with a conscience and heart and an intelligent mind, now go figure out what love and justice looks like in your real life. But here's what I can say for certain for all of us here. Be angry, but don't copy the out-of-control rage that you see on social media. We all have to decide at some point how and what sorts of roles each of us plays as we go about creating a better world. Because we're all different. Some of us are good at talking, some of us are not. Some of us are great with social media, some are not. Some of us are better with being on the ground with people. Some of us are organizers, administrators. Some of us are one-on-one people. It doesn't matter. Just be who God made you to be. Just live by love and justice. Just make sure, however, that whatever justice you decide to do, that culture and that behavior and that practice is Jesus' form of justice that actually produces fruit. So listen, justice is not dehumanizing, shaming, or ridiculing others. It's not. Justice is repentance, reconciliation, and restitution. And listen, don't let anybody tell you otherwise because nowadays I know it's very popular, right? Everyone is questioning, you know, are you, you know, you know, are you sure anger is not productive, blah, 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 blah. Listen, Jesus' justice is nonviolent, but it is not weak. Jesus did get angry. He just didn't rage out of control. You see, I think nowadays, some people have wrongly conflated justice with rebellion. They think justice is about who can shout the loudest and get the most attention. Friend, can I just say this to you? Don't be a mere rebel. Be a revolutionary. You see, rebels shout, but they have zero solutions. Revolutionaries don't need to shout because they have productive solutions. Jesus moved the world forwards, not backwards. And you must do the same. Live by productive justice. Amen. Yeah.